0: listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont, welcome. With me today as co-host is Michelle Jewell Shaw, volunteer and leadership committee member for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Thanks for being with me again today, Michelle.
1: You're welcome, and thank you for having me again, Jeremy. Hello to all of our listeners out there.
0: Because we're recording this in late May, and we're still dealing with the pandemic and social distancing and all that stuff, we are recording this via Zoom. We're actually recording this a couple of days after Memorial Day. That uh, would have been the opening weekend for Open Houses at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, which is just a few minutes from where I am here in Portsmouth but sadly our open houses are on hold.
1: And that's the case with a lot of lighthouses around the country, Jeremy, not just us, unfortunately.
0: Sad to say. And uh, again, even though we're recording this in late May, this episode will be released on July 1st. I was looking to see what historic events have happened on that date. On July 1st, 1963, zip codes were introduced for US mail. On July 1st, 1979, sony introduced the walkman remember those
1: i do remember those i was eight years old when those came out
0: <laughs> my wife still uh listens to one she still has one in fact I think oh she wow. using it today yeah then they came out they had the well they had the uh cassette version originally and then the yep. cd version later yeah yep. but i think you have a, a quote something about somebody who was born on this date also
1: i do also the acclaimed american dancer and choreographer Twyla Thark was born on July 1st, 1941. She once said, and I quote, the only thing I fear more than change is no change. The business of being static makes me nuts, end quote.
0: I agree. So maybe we should move on to our interview. Today we have part two of a two-part interview with Ralph Krugler, historian for the Hillsborough Lighthouse Preservation Society. Ralph is not only one of the most knowledgeable people about Florida lighthouses, but he's been helping with the ongoing creation of the J. Candace Clifford Lighthouse Research Catalog for the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Michelle, could you recap some of the basic facts about Hillsborough Inlet Lighthouse,
1: please? Sure, Jeremy. Hillsborough Inlet Lighthouse is on the southeast coast of Florida on the north side of Hillsborough Inlet, midway between Fort Lauderdale and Boca Raton. The light went into service in 1907. It's a skeletal type cast iron tower with its light 136 feet above mean high water. It has a rotating second order Fresnel lens that is still in use. The property is now cared for by the Hillsborough Lighthouse Preservation Society and public tours access the light station by boat. You can learn more about the organization and tours at hillsborolighthouse.org.
0: I spoke with Ralph Krugler recently about the very colorful history of the light station and its keepers, about the book he's written about it and his research sources, and about the work he's done on the U.S. Lighthouse Society's research catalog. The first half of my interview with Ralph was heard in episode 68 of this podcast. Let's listen to part two now. One of your recent Instagram posts uh had to do with the 1921 wildfire could you tell that yeah. story
2: going through the logs back to Burgell days they would note you know the weather condition and a lot of times it would say smoky well then you figure out you know it was all everglades and air wildlife area so wildfires during the dry season were very common hillsborough's on a peninsula on a barrier island basically on the opposite side of the canal the western side is where all the fires always were. And they would come pretty close, but no big deal because, you know, there was water in between. Well, 1921, they could see from the top of the tower, you know, there know, there's a lot of smoke up north. Knight and his second assistant, Judge Becton Eisler, another person you could write an entire book on, decided, well, let's go up to Deerfield, the town of Deerfield. And cause they had to get a couple supplies and see where the fire is. So they got up on the boat in the early morning. Headed up there and saw, so, oh boy, the fire's on our side. And the wind is pushing the fire south. It's feeding it, and there's nothing but dry brush between us and the lighthouse station. There's nothing there to stop it. So they headed back to the lighthouse, grabbed the tools that they needed saws, shovels, picks, whatever they needed, went back up, back up to the barrier island. They found a strategic spot and they proceeded to cut down every bit of vegetation, up in about 10-foot-wide swath, and then dug it down from canal to ocean, and you're looking anywhere from 50 feet on, on up. Actually, 50 feet, that's not even close, more like 100 feet on up. To do that for 10 feet wide for that duration and only two people doing it, That was one heck of a job. And then when they got done with that, they didn't just rest and and say, hey, we're done. No, they started a backfire. So they got rid of any vegetation that led up to their little ditch. So they burned enough that by the time the fire reached that spot that day, not the next day, that very same day, the fire went out because they had nothing left to burn. So those two guys saved the entire lighthouse station in one afternoon.
0: Wow. That's a, yeah, that's, yeah that is an amazing and story. Again, yeah.
2: Think about everything that, you know, all the maladies that, that Knight was dealing with already. So this guy was, this guy was a rock. He, he was
0: unbelievable. Yeah. Another thing that's uh, certainly plagued the the station over the years has been the hurricanes and there's been a, a bunch of them over the years that have hit the oh, yeah. station hard, including <laughs> including in recent years. Could you mm-hmm. just go over some of the I don't know if highlights isn't exactly the right word, but uh, <laughs> maybe lowlights. But if you could uh, talk about some of the hurricanes that have really affected the sure. station.
2: Sure. The, the the first one, the first one that really left a mark was in 1926, where they were watching the water go over the entire lighthouse reservation from ocean to inlet. This thing was just Wave after wave, there was nothing there to block it, and the cottages were smart. They were smart. They built them three feet off the ground, and water was coming up through the floorboards of the cottages. You know, so they, they the, the families, you know, hunkered down best they could while the lighthouse keepers stayed in the lighthouse. And if you remember what I was saying about the technology of the thing rocking back and forth, what happened was the lighthouse was swaying back and forth so much that the light, the lens wasn't cheered at wheels. It sat on a bed of 450 pounds of mercury. And if you know anything about mercury, it's a very dense, very heavy liquid. But that thing rocked enough that mercury actually slopped out of the mercury trough. And as that thing just rocked back and forth, those guys kept that lighthouse going. And, you know, amazingly they had absolutely zero tower damage. The cages turned out to be fine. The storehouses were fine. And they spent the next, I don't know, three or four months shoveling sand off the reservation. That happened again in 1928, almost the exact same scenario. Then successive hurricanes, same kind of a deal. 1947 hits. This was a big one, the first major one of the Coast Guard era, era where the, the officer in charge had to call uh, District 7 Miami to get permission because he didn't want to keep his family in the, in the cottage. He wanted them in the tower and he needed their permission. He got the permission. So the family rode the thing out in the tower. And one of his daughters, she mentioned how loud it was. I never really thought about that. Well, if you're from a sailboat and you know the rigging when you get in the wind, you know, it starts vibrating and makes that sound. They call it the, the, the rigging is singing. Same thing happens with these, the the legs and the tension rods. Every bit on there starts to sing, and as the thing rocks back and forth, it starts vibrating and the loud, the, the sound magnifies inside the tower. So not only are you walking back and forth in the high winds, you're watching water wash over your your property. You're watching part of the roof of your cottage blow away, and you're having to cover your ears because it's so loud. It's almost deafening inside there. And then in uh, 1960, I think it was 1960, when Hurricane Donna hit. Yep. This was amazing because by this time they would clear the barrier island, and only the lighthouse keeper, the officer in charge, John Avendikov, and his stepson. Uh, Tim, oh boy, no, I can't think of his name, Tim Williams, um, were the only two. And Tim was like nine years old at the time. Tim got dropped off by the bus after school and, and stayed with his stepfather. Mom, mom was gone. She was up on vacation visiting her parents. So the two took a rope from the back door of their cottage to the concrete radio building and figured, you know, we're going to probably ride it out in there because it's a much more stable building. But you know, just in case we're going to tie a rope also from that, about 100 or so feet to the lighthouse so we can get inside there in case we need to. And after a couple hours, John says, you know what, let's leave the cottage, let's go to the radio building because this house is starting to, to rock. You know, the thing was built in 1906. And I don't know if it's going to stand. So they go to the concrete building. They're in there for a little bit. Station Miami calls and says, hey, uh, John. John. Your weather vane is out. We need this data desperately, so you have to go up to the tower and fix it. John didn't bat an eye because he didn't want to be a lighthouse keeper. He wanted to be in the thick of it. He wanted to be on boats. He was on icebreakers up in Alaska. That's what he loved. He loved the adventure. And he said, without batting an eye, he said, okay. So him and Tim go out. They grab the rope. There was nothing again no vegetation between ocean and where they were, so they literally got sandblasted the entire time and hurricane in hurricane-force winds. All you know, they grabbed the rope and pulled themselves to the lighthouse. John was strong enough; he got the door open in the wind, got them inside, closed the door. Once you went to the top, and our lantern has a door built into it, so it's a diamond-shaped glass. It's circular around, and there's a door built into it, which is also you know it's brass with glass. And that door actually faces the ocean side. The weather vane was on the inlet side, so tied him up, tied Tim up, and the two of them went out and um, the lantern parapet is if it's two feet in width, you know it, it, you'd be lucky. The railing is maybe three quarters of an inch post with maybe a two inch bar at the top of it. There's really nothing there to protect you. There's the brass handhold in the astrogills, and that's it. So he tied himself up. The two walked around there in hurricane-force wind, again with the tower rocking back and forth, and you know screaming at each other so they could hear what tools they need. He would tell Tim what he needs. Tim would hand him the tools. You hold on for his dear life. Rock back and forth. Got the weather things fixed. Went back in. Rode the hurricane out. Watched quote unquote hurricane proof buildings that were in the area get literally blown away. and meanwhile, the cottages were fine. the lighthouse was fine. and they recorded the highest ever recorded hurricane force winds at that time that lasted until Hurricane Andrew hit. Those guys to say they had guts is a minor, minor deviation Understood. of what guts really is. Yeah, it was unbelievable. And to hear Tim tell that story, he's like, "Yeah, you know, we did this." And then he's like, "Less scared, heck yeah!" But you know, I was with my dad, so got to do what you got to do. And
0: yeah. Like, wow. Yikes! So he he's still alive.
2: Yeah. Yes, he is. Yeah.
0: Wow. So uh, I'm sure we could talk more about about hurricanes, but uh, let's <laughs> shift gears a little bit and actually go back in time from that. I understand that uh, President Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. Actually stayed near mm-hmm. the lighthouse in nineteen forty two. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Churchill left England and he needed to come to the States and have a little meeting with Roosevelt. Plus, he needed a little break from everything that was going on over there. He needed to recoup and you know get a little sanity back in his life. So he landed in West Palm Beach, came down and stayed on the Hillsborough Mile, which is our barrier island. Uh, the Secretary of State Edward Stateness, had a house just a stone's throw from the lighthouse. And so they stayed there. When you read about the now, at the time, you know, the media knew about it, but in the interest of public safety and, and their privacy, they didn't report it. Imagine that happening today. It never happened. But back then, you know, there there was some integrity with the journalists. They kept it quiet as best they could. But you know, Churchill being Churchill didn't want to just, he couldn't stay cooped up. So he actually went out and was seen swimming in the ocean, hanging out on the beach. You know, he had his group of, you know, ladies with him with their typewriters constantly, you know, taking notes and doing whatever thing that came up. So word got out. The head lighthouse keeper, Warren Bennett, who had been at the lighthouse the entire duration of the war, he got tasked with providing security. In so he ran the lighthouse, had people you know, at the station that he had be in charge of and run security for the stat in his house. Thomas's brother Cap's restaurant provided them with all the food. And so one one of the nights they just they got sick of being in the house. And so Bennett had to make sure that they were safe because they all went over to Cap's place for, for a meal. And of course, you know, imagine people's heads turning when they see these two guys come in and you know, you know, obviously Roosevelt wasn't walking in; he was rolling in, and uh, so it created quite the uh, quite the stir at the time. And you know, Saucy, so if you didn't know by then, you know, work got out quick. But it was one of those things that it, a lot of history doesn't know that this actually the meeting actually took place down here. This was before you know, U.S. was you know, technically you know in the war, but it was one of those things that you know, it's common things are going to happen. And let's be prepared in case it does happen. And it all happened just right here. Now, did they actually make it to the lighthouse? Well, I'm sure we were up in because of the wheelchair. But there's a pretty good chance that Churchill being as inquisitive as he is and getting to know the the lighthouse keeper, the officer in charge, there's a pretty good chance that he actually came over and took a, took a light look at our light. So if, it, if he actually did that, we don't know. But you know, there's a you know the possibility.
0: Yeah, you would think so. Let's jump back ahead up to more recent history, the Mm -hmm. formation of the the Hillsborough Lighthouse Preservation Society, and also Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, kind of off-and-on-again use of the Fresnel lens. Again, we could probably talk for for hours about all that, (laughs) but yeah, if you could just kind of uh, outline that more recent history for us.
2: Sure. Uh, May 1992, the officer in charge was eating dinner, and he heard a sound coming from the lighthouse that never heard before, runs out there, finds the entire lighthouse is vibrating, kills the power, doesn't know what's wrong. And as he got quoted in the news here saying, not really like you could pick up the phone book and look under the lighthouse repair and have somebody come out and take a look at it. And so for a couple of years, they really weren't sure what was wrong. They figured out the drive mechanism was done. And the Coast Guard, they they had the, the, the aerial beacons at the time, you know, the precursor to GPS, that was really their their main focus at that time. Lighthouses were really on, on the wane. And so they didn't know what they were going to do with the lighthouse. And so they commissioned a study, which came with four answers. And the cheapest one that they said, take the light out of there, put it in a museum, put a modern optic in there, and pretty much just let the lighthouse go. Well, there was a group of local citizens that I like to call the right people with the right skills, gathered at the right time, and they did, and they formed the Lighthouse Preservation Society, they went to the Coast Guard and said, look, this is our heritage. And one of them, his grandfather was one of our assistant lighthouse keepers, and they wanted to save the light. They said, we can do this. We can do it for cheaper than what this bogus report says. And they eventually persuaded them to do it. And what what boggled their mind was the day that they found out that they were going to be given the opportunity to save the light, the Coast Guard said, well, we're going to do you one better. We're going to restore the lighthouse for you. And we've been working together ever since. And now we have the contract with the Coast Guard to keep the light going. So the the people who started this, you know, like I said, it went out in 92. They you know, knew that the mercury had to come out. So the mercury was already long gone. But what are we going to put in place? Well, they figured ball bearings would work. So they did a mock-up. They got some ball bearings, and then they they did some test runs, got it to work. And in January 1999, they got it relit. You know, the big pageantry, everybody was happy. But a a month to the day, the thing stopped turning. Well, they underestimated how much weight those ball bearings could carry, and they got crushed. So the light went out again turn the temporary beacon back on again, and put some windmill bearings in there instead. So they had to refabricate everything. In August of 2000, they relit it, and it's pretty much been on ever since. But there was quite a long time that those guys were working on this thing that the main light was out. They had just a little airport beacon on the exterior, which really showed maybe five miles, and that was it.
0: So, Ralph, you know, I mentioned before about your Instagram Posts, which I, I, I'm always entertained by, and I think a lot of people really enjoy those. And you post some great historic photos on there, and also on the uh, Preservation Society's website. There's so many great photos of the keepers and their families at the station. Where have you been able to find so many great photos?
2: Well, I was lucky. You know, He had gathered a bunch of, of photographs, and one of the greatest things he did, and he used the technology at the time, you know, the Xerox machine, so at least I knew that there were images other there to be found. Some ones that we use are still the ones that he had found. Other ones uh, I've been able to find you know, from the National Archives. I got pictures from the Coast Guard Historian's Office. I've also gone to all the libraries and historical societies from Miami to the south of us to Jupiter to the north of us and just asked for whatever they had. As I was doing the research for my book, I also went on every genealogy website that I could to do the research of the keepers so I can get more information on them, stuff that Josh Joshua couldn't provide. And so when I would find somebody, if I could find a living relative, especially if they post a photograph in there, I always email them. And to my surprise, I got several responses and several amazing photographs sent to me that way. And... I was really privileged that one of uh, Thomas Knight's grandsons lives in the area. His name is Sheldon Voss. His mother is Mary Knight Voss. She kept a photo album. She grew up at the lighthouse and she stayed there until she got married. And so a lot of the photographs that we have are from her. And just recently Sheldon let me borrow that photo album to scan. So we don't have the Xerox copies anymore. Now we have High quality scans and stuff. I thought came from the Stone family was actually stuff that came from her. And you know, when you scan a photo, usually you do about 300 DPI. Well, I I crank this thing up to find details, and the details in these pictures, these old photographs you can find, is just remarkable if you really really look. So I've been really lucky that with all the different research I've done that I've been able to add on to our files. And I'm always asking, you know, hey, you know, if you've been in the area for a while or if you have some kind of a tie to any kind of a photograph, please send it to us and, you know, we'll always give you credit. And so we've gotten a few that way also, but that's, Mm you know, pretty much how I got most of them.
0: Well, that stuff is, it's always like finding buried treasure when you uncover that stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's better than treasure. Can't put, a, <laughs> can't put a price or value on that stuff. Yep. So you referred to it a couple minutes ago, but uh, you mentioned that you uh, have a book on the history of Hillsborough <laughs> Inlet Light Station. Uh, tell us more about that.
2: 574 pages of text and photographs. And yep. to keep it at that many pages, I had to make it literally the size and dimensions of a phone book. And I did it because I was going to do first edition limit to 100 copies, sign numbered. And once I sell those off, I'm going to split it, the second edition into three volumes, try and get more information and make it much more user friendly and palatable for people. You know, cause like I have to charge a hundred bucks per book and I have to sell over 75% of them just to recoup the printing cost. So it's not like I'm making money off of this, <laughs> but everything I found, like I, I couldn't not put it in the book. There was so much information. I'm like, if I had an editor, I know this thing would be, you know, 50 pages, 100 pages long. They would just cut everything out. But I wanted to keep it in there because I don't just go into the White House. I'll, I'll talk about the Barefoot Mailmen that were in the area before us because one of them died at our inlet. I talk about the Houses of Refuge where, you know, people who are on ships, they wrecked. They could go to these Houses of Refuge on the beaches and get saved. And, you know, more of Florida history that we've lost, people don't know about. And if I would drop somebody's name, like um, Nimitz, who stayed at one of our cottages for a vacation, you know, just a little bio on him. And I know that, you know, I just, who cares, who cares, who cares. It would just chop everything out, especially like when I go in the log books. And I would go, I put in there, you know, I like go year by year and it's like, oh, you know, they're painting again. Yeah, we get it. They're painting about know again. Well, yeah, but if you write that once in a book and say they paint it every year, if something comes in your brain, goes out of your brain, you say, okay, whatever. When you see it over and over and over again, you see it wasn't that romantic of a life. Yes, it was a great life for the families, but this was hard work. This was a lot of tedium, a lot of boring days, and then punctuated by these really exciting things that happened that we all think about. But then it's back to the, you know, the, the tedium of being a lighthouse keeper. I wanted to just completely romanticize this and make this, oh, you know, these are, everybody was a hero, everybody was great. Well, no, some of these people that worked here were not great. Some of these people were scoundrels, you know, to be polite. And so I wanted to put as much information in there as I could, for at least for the first volume. I figured for the second, you know, I might start cutting some things out just to make it a little bit more, like I said, user friendly, but, I gotta sell out the first editions first before I can afford to do the second. So we're almost there.
0: Okay, good. And <laughs> how do people get your book?
2: Well, currently I have all the copies. So if you email me at hlpssubmissions@gmail.com, at gmail.com, I could these things have been boxed up for a couple months, so I could just drop them in in the mail for you tomorrow.
0: <laughs> okay. And can it also be ordered through the website?
2: Yes. If you email them, they can get me the information and I can
0: send one out. When
2: I do the second edition, that's going to be available on all the real retailers. and There will be a digital version also at that time.
0: Okay. While we're on that subject, what is the website of the Hillsborough Inlet uh, Lighthouse Preservation Society? org. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we're actually speaking on May 17th, I think that's right, right? Today's May 17th, yeah, yeah. but (laughs) yeah. uh, yeah. (laughs) It's You know, the day's kind of running together Mm -hmm. these days. But anyway, it is May 17th. People are going to be hearing (laughs) this uh, quite a bit later in June. But the
2: future.
0: Yeah, right. Um, Tours (laughs) are suspended indefinitely as we speak, and things probably won't totally be back to normal when people are hearing this. But when things do eventually get back to normal, please tell us a little bit about how tours to the Hillsborough Lighthouse are, are run and what people can expect.
2: Sure. Well, unfortunately, with our unique situation, we have no direct street access, so we can't have people just driving up in their cars. So what we do is we have a, an agreement with a hotel and restaurant on one of the canals, the uh, coastal Waterway. We hire a dive boat, and so you go, you park in their parking lot, you can hang out in the bar there or on the dock waiting for the boat, and then you pay for your entrance fee there, and if you do the yearly plan you pay once i think it's like 35 bucks and you can come to every tour free for the rest of the year and so you hop on this dive boat and they take you about 15-20 to 20 minute little ride down the intercoastal comes out underneath the bridge into the inlet and we have a dock and you dock up there where you're met by one of our volunteers they tell you where you can go where you can't go because Unfortunately, the cottages are rented out to Coast Guard for their R&R. So we have no museum on site in terms of that. But they'll tell you, you can hang out on the beach, you can go swimming, you can go snorkeling, you can stay here all day long if you want to. Or, you know, you can wander the grounds and, you know, we have a memorial brick garden. You can inspect the cottages from the outside, you can admire the architecture, you can climb the tower. Uh, we do have a statue and a memorial to the Barefoot Mailman, like I talked about earlier, who passed away there. Uh, a couple of monuments, different things around. you can just hang out with one of our volunteers on full tour days. And that has recently started doing barbecues, so you can get some food there and hang out there all day long and ask as many questions or as little questions as you want. It's mm-hmm. really up to you. You can take as much in or as little in as you want.
0: Let's uh, before we wrap things up, let's uh, talk about a, a pretty different subject. I'd like to talk a bit about. For the past mm-hmm. uh, couple of months or so, you've been helping with the uh, U.S. Lighthouse Society's J. Candace Clifford Lighthouse Research Catalog. You've yep. been doing what I would call uh, kind of a culling of the society's archives and also entering material into the online research catalog, which everybody mm-hmm. can access when they're doing lighthouse research. I'm personally very involved with that catalog uh, myself, and it's it's really a pleasure having someone like you helping out, because obviously, as people have heard, you have a very extensive working background, not just with with the, uh, the Hillsborough Lighthouse, but with Florida lighthouses and just lighthouses in general. You're extremely knowledgeable. So how has that experience been so far?
2: It's been a lot of fun, very informative and frustrating. And, and not we can actually kind of go back in time here, how you and I actually kind of got hooked up on this is I went on there and found an error. I looked up Alexander Bergel, Alfred Bergel's bio on there. And there's a picture of Willie Sherritt in that place. And that was the, what i like to call him the scoundrel who actually made Bergel resign. And so I sent you guys an email, please, please, please. You know, I'm sure the man would be spinning in his grave if he knew, his this guy's photograph is under his bio. Right, so it was changed, and so as I'm going through, you know, um, doing this, it is so much fun to look at these photographs. I am learning so much about because I'm just in Florida right now, and so many details of different lighthouses, and some, unfortunately they're no longer here anymore. And it's frustrating because there's so much information there that I don't have the time to read yet. Right. And it's like I want to read. You know, it's like I wish I could like you know, batch upload and just get all this up there, so I didn't go back myself and start pouring through this because there's so many great things and there's so many architectural designs, photographs, uh, correspondence, things from Stephen Pleasanton. There's so much there. It's like I want to consume all of this. I just don't have the time to do it, so yeah. it's a little frustrating.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and, well, the nice thing about it is that it's it's not a it's a never-ending project. It's an infinite yeah. project, basically, that will never be finished. So you and yep. I and everybody else who's working on it will will always be working on it. I mean, we're all doing other things also, but as long as there's there's people who are interested, they'll be putting time into it. For people who don't know about it, let me just say that you can go on the U.S. Lighthouse Society website, which is uslhs.org, and navigate to the uh, J. Candace Clifford Research Catalog. There's a way to go to it directly, which is archives.uslhs.org It's fun to play around with and we're always Mm -hmm. adding to it the uh, photos from the National Archives are in there, photographs from the Coast Guard Historian's Office, but a lot of other materials as well. And we're always looking for private collections to be added to it from family collections, pictures of keepers, uh, local historical societies, and everything else. So Mm -hmm. it's uh, again a never-ending project and uh, the more the people uh, donate to it; the more it'll serve Lighthouse researchers for forever. So, but uh,
2: and really keep keep mm-hmm. keep the memory alive, keep the people's history alive, because this is our shared history, and this is something that you don't want to just go to and just forget about. These are amazing people that lived amazing lives. If just went over today so far, if we can get more of those stories from every lighthouse and keep their memories alive, it's so worth it.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, to have somebody like you, who's got such a, a great working knowledge is a, is a huge benefit to, to what we're doing uh, with the society. Right. So I've got one more question for you for bonus points, Ralph. <laughs> so get your pencil ready or get your, I should say, wow. get, get, <laughs> no, you can put your pencil down. This is an oral question. Okay. Uh, what oral. do you enjoy? Yeah. What do you enjoy most about your work with the Hillsborough Lighthouse Preservation Society?
2: Wow, how do you even begin to answer that question? Uh, Everything?
0: Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's a good answer. I
2: I, I mean, seriously, when I volunteered, I wanted to show that I I wanted to be there. I wanted to do this work. And as silly as this sounds, and most people are going to go, Really? This is what you like? I love being able to go there and sweep the tower like the LAS keepers did. I love being able to go there, scrape, paint, do whatever I can. Ken Herman, the president, and myself are two of the only people district seven allows to work, you know, not sorry work, but clean our lighthouse lens Because it's it's a working piece of art. It's a functional piece of art. It's over two million dollars in value, cannot be replaced and to have that privilege that they trust us enough to do it. it, it I really can't find the words for how much of an honor it is to be able to do that. Granted, it, it, when you're doing it, it's you know like a convection oven in there, but I don't care. It is so much fun. Doing tours, private tours, public tours, getting to answer questions, going back to cleanse cleaning. We actually get to teach the new Coasties that are in the Atons, if they want to, how to do it. And to see their eyes light up when they first walk in there, and then, you know, you kind of judge how much information do they want and so just throw a little tidbits. Well, typically by the end of it, they want more and more information. So you're just throwing trivia at them. You're throwing all awesome. And they walk out and they want pictures of themselves doing it. They want to post it to their social media. They want other you know, people to know. Like we had guys that, said, oh, you know, I want to get off all your rocks. Now. I want to get into your I want to go next tour. I want to go to this little house and clean and do this. And it's like, when you can spark people like that and you know, give people the history, the real history, not the, the myths, and answer questions and meet people from around the world, it's just so much fun. And then, like Even our local people, because like, of our situation, we want like people from all over the state They'll be on the top of the tower pointing. I've lived right there for 40 years. I've lived here for 20 years. i lived here you know, my whole life. I've never been here before. And now to be able to be there with them and give them more information that they ever knew even existed, it's, it's so much fun. It really is. I wish I could, that could be my career, but unfortunately, you know, we're all volunteers. But even as a volunteer, it's so rewarding to be able to go there. And it's such a privilege. I, I really do not take that lightly. I, it is an honor and a privilege to be able to be there and carry on the tradition that these people had before us. It's so much fun.
0: Well, your your passion is so, so apparent, you know, it really, really shows. So this interview we've, we're doing today is definitely going to be posted as two episodes of this podcast. But I know we've barely right. we've barely scratched the surface. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I fully realized that that we could do a, a series <laughs> of podcasts. And I do want to have you back on again for sure okay. but i have a suggestion for you also ralph <laughs> you need don't be so one-witted <laughs> no 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 not at all <laughs> no but seriously you need to have your own podcast and i'm totally serious <laughs> about that have you thought about that
2: never gave it a thought no.
0: well give it some thought <laughs> you Man. really really should do that and i i really mean that sincerely you should you should consider it uh and i hope you i hope you will think about it and if you need any uh help uh getting it started i would love to to uh to help but you should do it because you're you're a great storyteller you have a passion for what you do and i know that people would enjoy it and uh you know you could do a lot of it about the hillsborough lighthouse but you have uh, a lot of knowledge about other lighthouses as well so maybe a, a podcast about florida lighthouses and uh maybe you oh, we'll... put that bug in my head <laughs> <laughs> <Well, laughs> we could we could talk more about it at some point so anyway Josh, I,
2: get, get, get your phone right ready. Let me calling you. Soon, well, right?
0: I was gonna suggest that because I know Josh Liller, <laughs> and you two guys both have such passion. So, I didn't want to. I didn't wasn't sure if I wanted to mention his name uh, for everybody to hear. But Josh, if you're listening, <laughs> 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 we're putting the bug in your, you your phone, ear too. <laughs> uh josh has been a guest on this podcast as well and i i was down there uh about a year just about exactly a year ago and uh josh is is amazing too so anyway ralph ralph krugler thank you so much for spending this time with me today it's really been a pleasure and i know we'll be talking more as we work on the uh the research catalog and good luck with everything yeah so thank you so much ralph thank you
1: again to Ralph Krugler for today's interview. Again, for more information on Hillsborough Lighthouse Preservation Society and their public tours, visit hillsboroughlighthouse.org.
0: As always, many thanks to all the staff, volunteers, members and board of directors of the US Lighthouse Society, its chapters and affiliates. Visit uslhs.org to learn more about the society and everything it has to offer. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider becoming a member or making a donation to support it.
1: Thanks to everyone everywhere who works to preserve lighthouses or any kind of history. We're all on the same team.
0: I'm going to let it shine. In the immortal words of Stephen Colbert, quote, there's an old saying about those who forget history. I don't remember it, but it's good.
1: I'm going to let it shine.
0: As always, thanks for listening and
1: keep a good light. I'm going to let it shine,
0: everywhere I go, I'm going to let it
2: shine,
0: everywhere I go,
2: I'm going to let, go. let it shine, let
1: it shine.